You're listening to Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club. This is part two of the series on pediatrics. Joining us in this episode, we have pediatric emergency medicine specialists, Dr. Kerf Tan and Dr. Carl Pobre. The second paper is titled, Family Presents During Resuscitation in Pediatric and Neonatal Cardiac Arrest, a Systematic Review. This was published in Resuscitation in 2021 by Dante et al. And it will be presented by Marias. I guess I want to start off with the context as to A, why I chose this paper and B, the wider context. So the reason that I chose this paper is because I recently came back from a six-month pediatric term and I went from completely adult hospital to a pediatric hospital. And in the adult world, you've rarely got family present when there is an ongoing resuscitation unless somehow they've managed to walk in with that family member, which is just very unlikely. But in the paediatric world, it's not only common, it's encouraged to have family present as there is an ongoing resuscitation. And I asked why, and I was told it's because of the studies. And so then I would knowledgeably nod along, but obviously I didn't know what any of the studies were. So this is why I'm looking at this today. As a wider context, it would seem that it isn't a consistent practice currently in paediatric medicine to have parents there during a resuscitation, but in the paediatric hospital that I went and practiced some emergency medicine in it was consistent practice there and they're trying to see whether or not there's any evidence base to support this as a practice so Dainty et al conducted a systematic review their PICO question was in children with cardiac arrest in any setting does family presence during resuscitation compared to no family presence during resuscitation result in improved patient outcomes short and long term family-centered outcomes, short and long-term, perception of the resuscitation, and healthcare provider-centered outcomes, perception of the resuscitation, psychological stress. So basically, they conducted this systematic review with reference to the PRISMA systematic review checklist, and the protocol was registered with the Prospero International Prospective Register of Systematic Reviews. So a information specialist conducted database searches in the Ovid Medline, MBASE, the Cochrane Central Register of Control Trials, the Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews, Cumulative Index to Nursing and Allied Health, and Psych Info databases. And initially, based on their search terms, they identified 3,393 papers, which they then screened down by duplicates to 2,242. They then screened it by title and abstract, and they came down to 62 papers. And then after that, they included 38 papers in this review. So the reason that they didn't include some papers were, A, there was inclusion of mixed populations. So they wanted their populations of both neonate and pediatrics separate, as well as pediatrics and adults, obviously separate. For some places, there was no definition of resuscitation as a clinical situation. So they were also excluded. And there were often opinion and editorial pieces of systematic reviews, which were also not included. None of them basically were RCTs. All of them were observational studies qualitative interviews or surveys, basically. So they have even said it themselves that the quality was highly variable and a lot of the papers themselves were not of high quality for various reasons which we'll get into. Papers were published over a series of 20 years from 1999 to 2019 and they were conducted in 11 different countries including USA, Australia, Hong Kong, Greece, France, Europe, Canada, Spain, Sweden and Turkey. With regards to the results themselves, I suppose it was looking at it from three 
different perspective. I suppose there are three different stakeholders in a paper like this. So one, there's the patient themselves, two, the parent's opinion, and three, the healthcare worker's opinion. So with regards to the patient themselves or the children, there were no studies that looked into outcomes as to whether or not having any family presence actually helped the outcome with regards to the children. So we actually don't have any results with regards to that, which obviously would be a bit interesting. And the second was parents' opinion. So it would seem from looking at the various studies that they look at that parental opinion was that most parents wish to be offered a chance to be in the resuscitation. And the reasoning for this was that they thought their presence brought their child comfort. It helped them to adjust to the loss of their child and witnessing helped them know that all that could be done had been done, which was very important to them. With regards to the healthcare opinion, this was more wildly varied. So when it came to healthcare workers, the opinions ranged from 85% disagreeing with family presence to greater than 60% agreeing with family presence. Um, the reason for this was varied. They cited concerns for the psychological trauma for the parents, the risk of interference with medical management, and the stress on the attending care team, including performance-related anxiety. Problem with this is that often with the healthcare workers and even with the parental opinion is that for a lot of them, the questions were hypothetical and they didn't often have people answering these surveys who actually had experience with having family presence in resuscitation. Once again, quality was not great with regards to this. When it came to people with actual experience with healthcare workers, the more experience they actually had with family presence, the more they agreed with having family presence during resuscitation. So when you bring it up hypothetically, a lot of these concerns are cited, as well as when you bring it up with people with actual experience, but it sounds like you're more likely to agree with family presence there if you've experienced it yourself. There were separate studies done on the neonatal side of things. So family presence during immediate resuscitation after birth. They didn't include much on this. There was different reasoning and different opinions provided by the families with regards to this. So at the time, for example, some of the studies only spoke to some fathers They were saying that they weren't focused on the baby and their focus was more on their partner, which sometimes created some guilt. They had polarized emotions ranging from desperation to see the baby immediately or fear of witnessing a situation around their baby that they would have rather avoided, which seems to differ from the pediatric population. So ultimately, what we can say from these studies is they're pretty poor in quality. They don't have any RCTs, which probably would be unethical. But with the knowledge that we do have, qualitatively, family would like to be offered the opportunity to be there during resuscitation and healthcare workers with more experience may come along to echoing these opinions, it sounds like. The study concludes that they think the evidence is of very low certainty, there's no outcome-oriented evidence, and there's urgent need of high-quality comparative research. Thank you so much for that great summary of the paper, Marias. Obviously, this is an interesting topic and I guess it can be controversial as well. Also, as you said, some may believe that presence of family members during resuscitation is a parental right. It offers the parents an opportunity to be with the child, to understand the severity of the child's condition and to help with the grieving process. It obviously also provides an opportunity for shared decision making. But as you highlighted from your reading of the paper, their presence may be a distraction to the healthcare team and add to the already stressful environment in the resus room. Being there and witnessing certain treatments and procedures may even make the whole situation much more traumatic to the parents as well. Kerf and Carl, I'm interested to know what your thoughts are on this. In what way uh, do you think we can create the right balance in these situations? Yeah, thanks for sharing that paper. Really sensitive but important topic. 
Like Maria says, our sort of emergency department encourages parents or offers parents the choice of being in resuscitation or not. It's in keeping with my sort of pediatric training, having a shared decision-making, having the family sort of being there. It might help with the grieving processes. For me, it was very interesting to hear overall what parents thought. I think it is in line with what my personal thoughts were, that it might help with the grieving process. So I agree. I think all the resuscitations um, out of a hospital cardiac arrest or in the hospital cardiac arrest, I've had the parents at my side or behind me, supported by a social worker or another team member within the resuscitation team. And I think it seems to work well. In my sort of short experience, I haven't had any difficulties with parents affecting patient care during resuscitation. We've done many debriefs in the past. For me, it hasn't come up within the resuscitation itself. What happens after the resuscitation when you call it? That's a completely different story, depending on how parents react. But this is not the focus of the paper today. I think it's good to have parents there, but from my own experience, in order to do that, you need people there to support the parents, whether it's the social worker or another person in the team, to help guide them through what's actually happening. I think when it comes to the point when you're going to stop resuscitation, I think it sort of helps with the grieving process. It helps with the reactions that comes afterwards. I think it helps with the team, knowing that the parents are there, seeing we've been working as best as we can to try to resuscitate the child. So overall, from personal experience and from what it says, I agree that parents should be offered at least uh, to be uh, within the resuscitation area. My thoughts are I've seen actually both sides of the benefits and actually the adversity that's very occasionally can come up with getting the family or parent into the room. Specifically, the downside is actually based on what resources, mainly the people you have available. And what I'm talking about is your smaller peripheral centers as opposed to your tertiary centers where you have a big team. And say overnight, maybe you only got two registrars or CMOs or middle grade trainees and maybe two juniors. And then your usual complement of nurses, including one senior nurse in charge, and maybe one or two extra set of hands from the rest of the hospital to come help. Now, in those scenarios, a proper cardiac arrest in the pediatric setting can be, it'll be a very, very challenging scenario. And our current ambulance protocols will dictate that the child gets sent to the nearest emergency department as opposed to the tertiary ED. What I did experience as an advanced trainee, which interestingly came up as a conversation because I bumped into one of the residents that actually was with me in that recess, is that after all these years, both of us actually still quite traumatized from the incident. Uh, the clinical veneer is basically 15 to 16 year old who basically had an unexpected cardiac arrest at home, came into mm. a peripheral ED where basically... The team that described above had to manage the situation. They were also from a culturally and linguistically diverse family as well. And part of their emotional response to grief was also quite prominent. Interestingly, the visa situation was happening about between 6 and 7 a.m. And by the time at 8 a.m. when we actually finally realized that further resuscitation was futile, I had another five family members that were actually triaged and actually being in the ED as a different patient, whether it's from collapse with a seizure to someone's punched the wall, they've got fractures in their hand, a multitude of challenges there. And me as a senior in charge on that night, I brought the family in as I thought it was good practice. I had to actually manage the resus and run that as a team leader, but I didn't actually have another set of hands to actually guide the family as well. I had to do both at the same time. 
My thoughts are definitely strongly advocate to bring the family in if possible, but bear in mind that it's actually quite potentially resource intensive to guide the family along during the recess as well. You need someone to actually explain to them what's going on, answer their questions. Once they get over the initial shock of actually seeing what's happening and they're actually uh, being allowed to go closer to the house, they actually get someone to actually explain to them what's going on as well. The challenge is whether you can actually activate more resources in the scenario where you're under-resourced. In that scenario, I tried, but there really wasn't much more help I could get. I think the only time that I would say do not bring the family in is when you think bringing the family in will actually impair the actual medical resuscitation of the patient. You want to make sure you give them the best chance that you can get. And I think that's priority one, the patient. And then the family is a very close number two as well. The interesting thing as well that we see in the surgery center is we do have very good access to social workers. And we actually have a signal from the social workers at the end of the recess or after the actual recess and days to weeks afterwards, they also actually touch base with the parents and there's quite a lot of good positive feedback from that point of view. Mm. And it also helps them link up and get referral services for grief and counseling and so on later as well. Someone's actually touching base with them after the situation. I think the other thing which is quite important to talk about is actually how to prepare the family to go into a resuscitation or cardiac arrest scenario. And I personally, even as a consultant, find that quite challenging. You should try to get someone as senior as possible, which is a big, again, a balance, difficult balance in resources as senior as possible to actually explain to the parents what's going on. One is actually you as a senior understanding what's going on to going to meet the family. And again, it's not everyone's favorite thing to do because it's very confronting. You see parents or carers that are highly anxious, wondering what's going on, probably have some idea that their child's actually dead or dying. You're breaking to them the bad news of what's going on and the usual communication techniques of understanding or establishing where their understanding is of the current situation, realizing that there will obviously be a gap between what is happening and what they know, filling up that gap, allowing them to express their emotions clearly at that stage of time, and then next is actually offering them to come to the recess and then setting some so-called ground rules as well, the way I see it. In general, I'll say something along the lines of we're doing all we can. In the setting, it's slightly we'll get you to stand aside for the moment and then probably bring you close to the child when we're ready. Next as well is I usually offer them to say we're going to take you along with this support person. Try to ask them questions if you can. Next thing, I also have sort of a backdoor exit plan where I say in the unlikely scenario we need to get you to leave the room for whatever reason we actually will just get you out of the room as well because in case maybe you're going to have a very uh, traumatic procedure like we're not it's going to be unlikely like going to say a resuscitative thoracotomy or something like that maybe you wouldn't want the parent to be there once you actually answer their questions acknowledge their emotions and probably just that's where you get bring them in slowly and then before i actually bring them in usually i'll exit the room and say go to the research room, actually ask the staff there as well. I'm going to bring the parents in. Are we ready for the parents to come in? Maybe there's a lot of blood somewhere. going to clean stuff up, make them a bit more presentable during the research as well. If you have the time and space and stuff for that. And then that's where you bring them in. So yeah, that's my approach. Kev, how would you deal with the parent whose behavior escalates to the point where it's impeding the efforts of the healthcare team and hence patient care? Obviously, this behavior can range from verbal abuse to physical abuse of staff obviously a very challenging scenario so i think that's why i think backdoor that set where i say if any point of time i need when you say we need you to leave the room that we actually get you to leave the room again when they're in that highly strong emotional state with that grief response you can almost never get to them 
you sometimes just got to give them the space and time to actually express themselves, the grief mm-hmm. that they're seeing in front of them or the resources happening in front of them. I have never ever had to call security or anyone to try to help to manage the situation. Usually they will be able to calm down, usually with the help of a family member alongside as well. Otherwise, usually after the initial explosion of emotions, they will move from that denial, anger to bargaining and depression quite quickly as well, quite commonly. I've never had an experience where we've had to escalate to security as well. I agree with Kerf, so principles there, sort of telling the parents. Sometimes when I do the resuscitation, I might prolong the resuscitation a little bit longer to get the parents ready to come towards the child. In that case, if I'm the team leader, one of the things that I've learned is once you get into the routine of your APLS, to pass that over to the next senior registrar or fellow, and they will give you space to chat with the parents. It might take a few cycles or so, but I think it's really important. Like Kerf said, explain the situation, the gravity of the situation, give them that space to ask those questions, and then sort of prompt them slowly to come towards the child a consensus decision that we're going to stop resuscitation, get the team psychologically safe for the parents to come in as well, because it's always very traumatizing when you call the resuscitation. You never know how the parents are going to respond. And each family has responded in a very different way. And that's the thing people remember, how the parents respond. Because once you're in that sort of CPR, APLS, you're very algorithmic medicine. Once you call stop, Then what comes to mind is that there's a child in front of you. These are the parents. And then this whole human emotion stuff comes up. For me, I can still remember all the times I've had to call it. And every response is different. You need to be sort of prepared for that also. This stuff is fascinating. And I think it's fascinating because it's so personal. As much as this is a systematic review of so many different papers and so much data, ultimately boils down to individual stories, right? I'm interested in the things that you guys have just shared. If you had your time again as a senior registrar, would you have called the family in? Looking back, it's a very challenging one to answer because I can definitely see both sides of the story now. And I think maybe the way to approach it is actually trying to dedicate someone else to actually try to manage the family in that research rather than me trying to both team lead medical resuscitation or cardiac arrest and also managing the family at the same time. I didn't have a social work available for that night, which would have been amazing. Right. Even the social worker came in, it would have taken them at least a half an hour to an hour. It's an arrest there. Someone's going to manage the family now. And then the other challenge as well with families, quite commonly of culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, they are quite massive families as well. Everyone rocks up. That was obviously during pre-COVID times. Now it's a little bit different. So in summary, what I've done different is probably try to delegate that role of managing the family to someone else. The challenge would be trying to find a senior to be fair, that night we didn't actually use the after-hours manager of the hospital in that recess. So maybe they would have been an appropriate role to try to manage a family. But either way, whoever manages them would have been a very challenging role as well. Thanks, Kerr, for sharing that. That's very personal. So thanks for bringing that up. Carl, with those situations, have you ever had a particularly negative or drastic reaction when you've attempted to stop a resuscitation? I've had some challenging cases where the parents wanted us to continue to resuscitate. and. We continued resuscitation for further more cycles while I spoke with them for about maybe five, five minutes or so. It felt like a long time. I think you need to give them that space to sort of confront the reality of the situation. So if you give them that time, each parent, each family will will respond differently. I had one 
parent who became aggressive but a few hours later. So just things to watch out for. Like I've said, there's different stages in the grieving process. You need to be aware of it as the team leader because you're looking after your team as well. No major sort of adverse events, but these things you need to watch out for after the resuscitation. So you're on for the resuscitation when you're team leading or part of the resuscitation. You still have to be quite on after the resuscitation just to make sure, you know, there's quite high emotion still within the family and your staff. So one of the other things that you need to do when you're more senior is to be able to sort of hold that together until everything has settled down. Personally, also, I've experienced where the family will ask for continuation of the resuscitation as well. One of the ways that I try to prevent that from happening or overcome that is actually going back to the basics in what we do in our line of was actually setting expectations appropriately as well. Mm-hmm. So during the initial brief, before even bringing them in, is actually saying the usual of we are doing literally everything we can. And along the lines of it is not looking good, we are actually planning to stop resuscitation soon because we've done our best and it doesn't appear to be working. Again, it's playing by ear, looking at what the response is from the family. Again, you can get that complete blank and shock look with no emotions whatsoever, which again is very hard to read. Are they even hearing what you're saying at all to the waiting family that you're dealing with, meaning your mom and dad in the family room with you alone, waiting and you're offering tissues there? Like I always walk in with a box of tissues if I can try to find one. Or it can be the anger again, right? But I've never really felt unsafe doing those discussions. And really setting the expectation will help with the termination of recess when we actually do it in front of them. Again, almost always, if I have to terminate recess with the family around, I'll bring the family in as well for that. For the last part, definitely. Actually seeing what we're doing and after that, actually me making the call. And then when they actually protest um, because of the emotions, that's where I'll try then then to say, we have unfortunately decided and just continue there. But I've never had to restart resuscitation yet, unlike Carl. So hopefully I'll never have to face that. But I guess in our line of work, we will see that now and then. You need to set the expectation and you need to be explicit about what's happening. I've escalated to the point where I said, your child has died. We're going to stop now. Please be with your child. We've done everything we can. I think it's important to be clear about, particularly at the end, parents are blank, they're in denial. I think you need to just be really honest to get them to that stage. That sounds incredibly difficult, Carl. I would also say, you know, this is obviously a huge topic and there's so many invested parties involved in this and so many outcomes, both immediate and delayed. But I think the importance of a, a really good hot and cold debrief for all of the staff involved is also so necessary. It's amazing how intense these experiences are. Several parents will feel guilt. They think they did something wrong to cause a child to have this arrest or something serious like that to happen. And quite commonly and almost always, it's not anyone's fault. And I think it's very important to actually mention that to the parents at some stage because it's part of the recovery process as well. And also actually helping them along with the emotions as well. Obviously, there'll be very rare cases where we actually don't completely understand and know what's happened or the unlikely non-accidental reasons for severe injuries or severe outcomes as well. But most of the time, it is not the parent's fault. And I think it's very important sometimes to say that if you're quite certain that there was nothing they could have done to prevent it, the common one is, did I do something wrong? Should I have brought them in earlier? Sometimes if there's a, sh- a little bit of delay, even if there's a bit of delay, it is very rarely that they've neglected the child to a serious extent. I mean, I was going to say in my highly limited pediatric experience, I feel like I went on the same journey as the people in the paper in that 
I went thinking theoretically about family being there at a resuscitation. I just thought, oh, wow, when they just put a lot of pressure on the team, knowing that the family is right there watching them. I guess your performance wouldn't be as great if somebody is watching you and without added pressure. But I found once again with my limited experience that once you're in the resus, you become task oriented. So for example, I was in a resus where I was like the primary survey doctor and I can still see the parents right there, but I stopped thinking about them. Obviously, hopefully the team leader was thinking about them. And I think there was somebody with them explaining what was going on. But once I was doing what I was supposed to be doing, I did forget about the parents and it didn't affect my performance, I found. I was again there in another one where I was off to the side and I could see that there was somebody else with the parents and I could see that the team didn't even notice that the parents were there. And so I don't think it had affected their work at all as well. But I wonder now that I'm only saying this and feeling this way because I experienced my pediatric term during the COVID times where family was limited to one or two people and wasn't a whole group of people um, potentially creating a scene. So that is food for thought, I think. That brings me to the next question. So in your experience, how has COVID impacted or changed the way you practice in these situations? If it's a resource, we tend to not obviously restrict parents or carer access. Both parents or the carers will be allowed to come in, of course, in terms of crowd management. And also the communication between the whether the medical or nursing team leader with the parents should not be compromised in any way. Um, other than that, the challenges will be the medical expertise expect of um, COVID precautions or not in the resource. Every department will have their own challenges in trying to manage that or with, in terms of infection control. Right now, we're not actually seeing any signal of children dying from COVID. There are obviously some around the world, but they tend not to be the primary problem. And the good thing is all of us are usually in PPE during a recess anyway, with your full airborne contact and droplet precautions. In general, we still try to close off the airway if we can, uh, either with a laryngeal mask or endotracheal tube during a CPR to try to minimize all the aerosol spread. The challenges also are with whether you should actually do the resource in a negative pressure room or actually in the open area. And it all depends on case-by-case risk assessment of the COVID risk, as well as what's the risk to the patients around child with cardiac arrest, meaning is the resource BA in other cubicles completely empty where there's actually minimal to no risk versus actually there's multiple patients. Can we actually try to minimize the risk for other patients? We definitely see impairment in performance when you actually go into a negative pressure room just because of the space limitation when you actually need quite a lot of space and equipment and people in a complex cardiac arrest resource. Yeah, I completely agree with Kerf there. Different challenges. We make exceptions for parents to come in the resuscitation room. Also, after the resuscitation room, some of their supports can come in with the social workers that I've seen in the past. It's case-by-case basis. PPE, we've had practice already. And I think from all emergency departments, it just adds that extra layer of complexity in the situations. But, you know, we've, we've started putting some mitigative strategies in place. Obviously, these situations are very traumatic to all involved, including the healthcare staff. In your experience, how do you guide your team after such an event to ensure that they're looked after or supported? The debriefs super important. Particularly, I find the hot debriefs are probably the most important thing. You know, these resuscitations come any time of day, particularly challenging overnight with minimal staff. I think a multidisciplinary debrief is even better. So sometimes if we have a chance, the department is stable, we get the doctors, the nurses, 
the other members of the resuscitation team, which are outside of ED, and including the paramedics just to debrief, I find that brings the picture together and answers a lot of different questions. I find it very interesting what the paramedics say. They give a lot of clues because there'll be a lot of questions about why this child arrested. So they can give a lot of context to the clinical situation. I think that space, and I'm sure Mr. will talk about it more, is just a space for people to sort of vent out their emotions, their underlying thoughts. I think it's good to get it out in the open, to have a shared mental model and to make sure that people are going to react to this in their own different way. And they just need to be mindful and also try to seek support, look at their social supports to help them in the next few weeks. Having a, a hot or warm debrief, I think, is vital after a big resuscitation. Completely agree with Carl as well. The challenge is actually trying to get everyone to stay after an arrest. Commonly, everyone else is busy doing something else. I'll give you an example where there was an arrest that I attended recently that got called in to the tertiary pediatric ED where I finished this arrest. I've got a child next door that's actually in status epilepticus that I need to intubate at the same time, right? How are you going to do a hot debrief in there? It's about, again, delegating that appropriately. Maybe we got the ICU fellow who was actually, you know what? They're actually team leading the cardiac arrest anyway. I say, why don't you gather the, the troops and people involved there that we can spare, do a hot debrief there. The other option, obviously, is actually to do the debrief after you sort out the second recess. But the challenge is at that point of time, everyone's dispersed. No one's going to come back. Or if you want to make time, it's very, very hard. We're talking about hours later. It's a change of shift because it's before 7 a.m. as well. Change of shift, mm-hmm. the nurses are no longer there. So mm-hmm. very challenging. I made a difficult call to say, why don't the ICU fellow actually just do the debrief while I go and attend the recess with my skeleton crew that actually can manage the second recess. Next challenge as well as uh, sooner or later, when you guys turn senior, you will be the one actually organizing the cold debrief. Can you imagine how difficult already is it to organize a hot debrief? How are you going to gather everyone for a cold debrief? Again, depending on how busy everyone is, very, very challenging. What we try to do, however, is actually support each other. So again, going back to well-being, don't forget you've got the grieving parent. There's actually your grieving clinicians as well. Someone's died under your care. Someone's died while you're looking after them. It's actually a big challenge for a lot of people. What we try to do as well is one, your corridor, are you okay? It's very important. And knowing actually what to say when they say, you know what, I am not okay. And that's where you put them aside, actually have a good chat afterwards. Having, as a junior, you should try to touch base with your senior and get some support, at least have someone to talk to. As a senior, you need to contact the juniors involved and actually touch base and see and do a bit of a well-being check. Where are you at? How are you doing? This is what we can do. At least have a chat versus you're really in trouble now. We actually need to get you some help just because you're not feeling psychologically safe anymore. Should we take you off some shifts? Should we take you off some night shifts because you're team leading and you feel like it's your fault they did something wrong when it's not? Many variations of the potential outcomes of this. In general, we somehow as emergency clinicians just cope, but maybe there's more to just coping and just offering each other support as well. Just some extra practical tips with debriefing. We have a script, so that's good if somebody else can debrief. We sometimes encourage somebody completely outside of the resuscitation to do like an impartial debrief using the script. Cold debriefs, like Kirf said, difficult to organize with our shift works and our rotations. So practical things you can do as a senior is just to delegate. So get the nursing staff or the nursing leads to follow up with that team. Get the chief resident to follow up with the teams outside of ED who was involved in the resuscitation. Speak with the supervisors of the trainees in ED to catch up with them. It's hard to be able to coordinate that by yourself. But if you delegate, then you know at least there's some sort of safety net out there.
it's very important to have a heart debrief because as ED physicians or ED trainees, as well as everyone involved in the team, you've just seen something incredibly difficult or been involved in something incredibly difficult. And then you're expected to dust it off and then go see the 50 people waiting in the waiting room or go deal with your other patients that you've been dealing with before. So I think getting as many of the emotions that you can out fairly quickly probably help facilitate that a bit better. That is a key point to understand, isn't it? I have seen at least one hot debrief that I didn't engage as much with. And I felt that the issue there was that in the hot debrief, there was talk about, oh, you know, this was a problem on the day with the resource or, oh, we need to improve this for next time or we need to do that. I think at least from my perspective, hot debriefs are about emotions and about checking in with people. And I think that it's really important to leave the systemic issues and the quality improvement and that sort of stuff for the cold debrief and for future sort of retrospective, more clear-eyed reviews of the situation. Yeah, I agree. So I think for debrief, the focus should be the emotions as um, Shreyas has said. Um, saying that also as a, personally, I try to check in, especially with the seniors on the team as well, about whether there's any system problems or equipment or staffing problems as well. Because in a week's time, no one's going to remember that. Or maybe they do, but I don't. And it's a good time to collate that as well to work on it, especially in small centers when you deal with something very uncommon, you may not be very good at it. I think it's very crucial that you take the information back to the systems and actually get that looked into. The other useful forum actually is your M&M meetings as well. That's where maybe you're going to invite your special guests uh, that were involved in the case outside of ED to actually come in for the M&M and actually attend and actually discuss the case. That can be a useful point. But again, in that sense, tend to be focusing on what actually happened, the medical expertise expect, and the resources available in the system, but not commonly at that stage about your emotions as well. So important to remember that not everyone that's there is a doctor or a nurse. Not everyone that's there has seen this before. There are wardies there that are doing CPR potentially. You know, there are security staff there that might have been working in a pub or club the week before that might never have seen anything like this. And we need to really make sure that we broaden our cover and include all these people and check that all these people are okay. I think it's really important at this point to mention the employee assistance program, which obviously is confidential and anonymous. And I believe their phone number is 1300 687 327. That was a very sensitive and a, as well as a thought-provoking discussion. Thank you so much, everyone. Marius, could you give our listeners a few take-home points? So ultimately, I think my take-home points are that, one, it would be great to have better studies looking into family presence in resuscitation. So maybe looking into the outcomes for the patient themselves, maybe some better qualitative evidence looking at what happens to the families afterwards with family that have or have not been involved in resuscitations as opposed to asking random family. And the same thing with healthcare workers. I think with the evidence that we do have it being limited, the take-home points will be, one, if there is family around, they should be asked whether or not they want to be in resuscitation. Two, like everyone has said, there should be a resource allocated to that family member. Otherwise, it can take away from the resuscitation itself. And then ultimately, we should be about providing the best care to the patient. Three, if you're struggling with a resource, go seek some support. Thanks so much. Now it's time for the interlude segment. It will be presented by Dr. Kerf Tan. Hi everyone. 
I'm just going to talk about thinking about the way we think and cognitive biases. Now, in our fast-paced emergency life, as we get busy, we try to find ways to speed up our work. This is where it gets interesting with thinking about the way we think, with a focus on cognitive biases today. Now, the beginning of thinking about thinking is actually having some resource for you to actually gain insight into what goes into our minds. And one that I highly recommend is actually Thinking Fast and Slow by, by Daniel Kahneman. talks about System 1 and System 2 thinking, where System 1 operates like a snap judgment, where it operates automatically and quickly with little effort and no sense of voluntary control. For example, the experienced clinician does a cursory glance at a patient and says, this patient is very unwell, Sherlock Holmes style. It's however like any heuristic system prone to biases. System 2 thinking is where you use slow, deliberate, systematic thinking, requiring much more effort and time. An example demonstrating the two systems would be what is 1 plus 1 versus what is 123 multiplied by 234. Anchoring bias seems to appear also very commonly when we look at morbidity and mortality reviews. This is where too much weight is put on the initial impression or label leading you astray from the patient's actual condition or diagnosis. When treating a patient, especially the life-threatening or severe form of condition, and they do not actually respond to your first or second line therapy, one has to question yourself, is it a much more severe form of the same condition or are we actually heading down the wrong path? For example, if a patient not responding to continuous bronchodilators with severe wheeze, one has to consider if you've missed that severe anaphylaxis in front of you. Next up is availability or recall bias. This is where likelihood of diagnosis or decision is based on the ease of retrieval from memory, whether it is because they're much more familiar, common, recent, or memorable in the more intense scenarios. An example would be that you have seen four patients with gastroenteritis today in your ED, and you see another pediatric patient with isolated vomiting without diarrhea. Your mind will easily grasp at the recent cases to push you towards gastroenteritis as a diagnosis without even reviewing the patient yet. This is where you must make a very deliberate attempt to consider the alternative diagnosis like could it be sepsis, a UTI, or even a head injury. Next up, confirmation bias. This is where we select or notice information that confirms our existing impression or opinion and refuting information that disagrees with us. I always wondered if this was part of preventing damage to our own ego. This gets increasingly difficult with opinions on social media where your minor decisions on what you tap and see leads to them sending you down a rabbit hole with targeting media that follows your views or impressions. Cue in the vaccine-hesitant presence on social media. Clinically, we can see confirmation bias in many forms. An example would be when there's objective signal that a patient is deteriorating. For example, the blood pressure is trending down towards the yellow zone or even the red zone. And the clinicians think to themselves, patient in front of them somehow looks really well or I can't actually explain the low blood pressure. It must actually be wrong. Another interesting thing I see is when your patient has a first reading of a low blood pressure on the background of normal blood pressure, we get another measurement to see is this actually a real low blood pressure or not. Quite commonly, we don't see the contrary though. When you actually have low blood pressure and you get your first normal blood pressure reading, we don't tend to actually repeat the measurement to confirm that the new normal reading is actually true versus a spurious reading. We somehow inherently try to confirm our belief that the patient is well and minimize signals that indicate unwellness. Now, moving on to the defense against the dark arts. 
Don't forget that our defenses against cognitive biases depend on our own resilience and well-being as well. We need to focus on self-care. When making important decisions, check where your personal well-being is at. Am I tired? Am I thirsty? Or hungry? Or hangry? Am I busting to go to the toilet? Sometimes we have to slow down with System 2 thinking, and if you're physically or mentally not ready, a hurried decision can be a bad one. With that, I'll end off with a quote from Abhijit Neska, author of Autobiography of God, Biopsy of a Cognitive Reality. Each of your brains create its own myth about the universe. That's it for part two of the episode on pediatrics. Thank you so much for joining us. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at westmeatedjournalclub at gmail.com. Stay tuned for part three. You don't want to miss out on this month's Kids Corner. Take a curve